Okay. We're at 90. I think that's a good place to start. Uh, welcome, everybody. My name is Adrienne Jean Forty. I work with Proof Strategies as a senior account director, and I am here, very happy to be here with ComNet V uh, to lead the discussion on our panel on equity in action ways to authentically reach diverse audiences with your marketing strategy. A little bit of a mouthful. We're, we're thrilled to have you here, um, even virtually, and this is a really important discussion to have. So we really appreciate ComNet for um, you know, providing this platform for us to continue to have these conversations. And um, this is one in which we've had a little bit of experience with, um, specifically with a couple of our panelists um, at our DC Communicators event. So um, my job here is simply to guide the conversation, but I really am relying on the expertise of our phenomenal panelists. And um, what we would like to do is keep the Q&A um, to the side. And what we'll do is probably cut it at about 2.40, or excuse me, 3.45. And we'll use the last 15 minutes to um, answer any pressing questions that you have. So please feel free to submit them as we go along. But um, I'll be uh, selecting a few of those to address right at the end of it. So without further ado, first we have Karina Hertz, uh, the Director of Strategic Communications at AARP. And I'll turn it over to her in just a moment. And then Teresa Danso-Denqua, who is the Next Gen Manager of the initiatives um, for the Initiative of Next Gen uh, Disability In, and Frank Trambo, who is the new uh, VP of Communications and Chief Communications Officer at Howard University, who's new to our panel to just talk about this really important topic. So we're thrilled to have him here. Um, and I'm going to ask the panelists to introduce themselves and a little bit more about what they do and their background. But I'd also like to uh, switch it up a bit and have them actually tell me what they think authentic marketing is and how they would define that. So I'll turn it over to Karina first. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon, and thank you, Adrian. Um, as Adrian mentioned, I'm a Strategic Communications Director with AARP. Um, this is my 10th year at AARP. I've been previously in the content and digital marketing teams uh, within the organization. My background is primarily um, on it's a traditional media, and then more recently, uh, more on the marketing side of things with digital marketing um, and marketing management. Um, so my team sits within the umbrella team of integrated communications and marketing at AARP. Um, and my role is really to be the front door and the bridge between this larger ICM, integrated communications and marketing team, and the rest of the organization, um, just supporting the various communications needs that we have as an enterprise. And my areas of focus are primarily around our work and employment programs, as well as our audience work, which entails uh, multicultural audiences, L LGBTQ, and um, veterans. And for those of you who are not that familiar with AARP, we are the nation's largest nonprofit, nonpartisan organization uh, with a mission to empower people 50 and over to choose how they live as they age. Um, and for me, um, authentic marketing really is one of those things that um, it's hard to explain, but you know when you see it. It's, uh, it's doing the right thing when nobody's looking. Is um, just doing things because you believe they are the right thing to do and not because you want to take advantage of uh, a specific event or momentum that's happening to gain advantage from that. And I think we're going to touch upon that a little bit farther down the discussion when we talk about uh, conversations on, on race and some of the societal issues that we're seeing. But I'm glad to be here and thank you very much. Thank you. And Teresa, how do you define authenticity of disability in? 
Hey everyone, as Adrian said, I'm Teresa Dansudin Kwa, um, and I work at Disability Ed. Um, many of you may not be familiar with their work, but we are the leading nonprofit resource for business disability inclusion worldwide. And we work with primarily the Fortune 500 in the US, um, working with about 220 companies across their full life cycle of products and marketplace. So we help with their hiring practices, we help with their supply chain, and then we help with them with their consumer and marketplace um, as well. And my role particularly falls in in the former in terms of the companies that we work with and their talent strategy. So I really help to help them diversify their pipelines and find early career talent that has disabilities. And to do that, we run a program for college students and recent graduates where they receive career development, um, job opportunities, mentorship, um, and attendance to our, our annual conference, which is kind of the, the gathering place of all these companies across the US and in regards to disability inclusion. Um, additionally, our organization works on just increasing the greater awareness around um, disability inclusion in the workplace and creating awareness about disability in society as a whole. Um, we're often forgotten about in the diversity scheme, um, and so we really want to make sure that people are aware of that one in four Americans has a disability, and that accounts for almost 61 million Americans. So. Um, as that number also continues to arise with an aging population, with um, the impact of COVID, um, it's really imperative that everyone sees themselves as part of the disability community, whether as a person themselves with a disability or as an, an, an ally who's really helping us to be inclusive and equitable. And to the, the question on defining authenticity, I think it's really around leading with empathy and really trying to genuinely connect with others in order to understand, you know, value, um, center and celebrate their experience that might differ than your own. And it's also about being honest, honest when you, where you are in your journey towards inclusion, um, honest on when you make mistakes and where there's room to grow. Um, so I'm really looking forward to the discussion today and that's kind of what I think about authenticity. That's terrific, Teresa, thank you so much for that. Um, and Frank, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you think is authentic marketing. Oh, thank you. Um, so just a little background, uh, name's Frank Trambo. I am the current VP of Communications and Chief Communications Officer for Howard University. And so my, the gambit of, of, of the scope of my work here is really related to all uh, marketing and communications on campus. So whether it's uh, the overall brand management, uh, 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 press, uh, public relations, um, our crisis communications, athletic communications, pretty much the full gambit of, 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 of scope here I have at Howard. And I also, background-wise, uh, I'm, I'm new to Howard, so uh, I just came from Georgetown University, too, where I um, uh, oversaw the storytelling and strategic communication surrounded around all of our development and fundraising-related fundraising marketing, uh, which uh, was a significant level for, um, for, for Georgetown University as well, as well as I am a adjunct professor um, at Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies uh, in the Integrated Marketing Communications Program. So um, my, my background has uh, been heavily in the higher education um, market and, and the difference is also becoming from uh, state institutions, uh, private institutions, and as well now 
um, in HBCU gives, has given me a really good scope of what it means to be authentic in a lot of different ways, uh, whether it's from the state level, the, the, uh, the private white institution, and now, of course, um, a historically black college or university. Um, one of the best definitions I've always used for, um, from, uh, for what it means to be authentic, it really comes from the Journal of Consumer Psychology, um, and they, they define it as the extent to which um, consumers perceive a brand to be faithful toward itself, um, true to its customers, motivated by you know, caring and responsibility, and the ability to support customers and being true to themselves. And really what that means to me is that when you're talking about authenticity, it's, a, it, it's around uh, no difference than a, a personal relationship you have. And can you engage in a meaningful and truthful and honest and genuine dia uh, dialogue between whoever your audience is and what, what your organization stands for? And so I think at a um, at a brief level, that's really how I look at authenticity is, 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 is thinking about that dialogue that you can create and one that's believable and one that feels uh, as authentic as you speaking to someone you love in your family. That's great. And I, I agree with all of your responses. And I think that, you know, it, it depends, right? It's, um, and I think this is really a conundrum that a lot of leaders are dealing with in terms of how they represent themselves to their audience and whether or not they're taking missteps either intended or not. Um, and I think that's really where we wanna anchor the conversation today. Um, there was a word that you used, Teresa, that I really love about this journey that people on, because it's very much that, right? We're still learning about this. It's not, um, I remember a year ago when we had this discussion at DC Communicators, I spent time sort of talking about what do we mean we say equity? What do we mean we say diversity and inclusion? and the words being sort of conflated. I don't think we need to do that right now. I think that people understand that it, EDI is so needed at this juncture for a variety of reasons. And we'll get into some current event stuff in a little bit. But talking about that journey, what have you all witnessed, and, and Teresa, if you'd like to start, uh, organizations uh, not doing it right? Or uh, what are some examples that you can think of that are bad habits that perhaps everybody falls into that's a bit of a trap when they start thinking about their marketing strategy and as a leader of how they want to reach those audiences? Yeah, I think it first starts with um, not recognizing the community that actually exists and, and trying to kind of create their own idea of what that community wants. So it's kind of the lack of outreach to and the lack of listening to the community at large. Um, we find that a lot in the disability community, often in representation in the media, it's often people without disabilities acting or portraying people with disabilities, um, whether that's models or, or actors in, in movies and TV. And so we really try to talk with companies to make sure that they recognize that there, there are disabled models out there, disabled actors that can be part of their, their product marketing um, and their materials as well. Um, at the same time, I think it's also just being um, just accurate about where they are in starting their journey. If they, if they don't have any people in their company that can really help them on their journey, then it's reaching out to disability organizations that exist that can consult with them and work with them along the way. Um, and knowing that everyone has to start somewhere. So you're going to make mistakes along the way, but it's just owning up to it and then being able to move forward from what the lessons learned when you hear that feedback from the community. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point. You hear about it a lot more now with movies, especially or models that are not from countries of origin that they're supposed to be placed in and LGBTQ and actors who are heterosexual playing LGBTQ. I mean, it, it kind of, you know, there's a huge laundry list of complaints that you hear about. So that's, that's really on point, I think. Um, Frank, I, you know, in, in regards to this journey, being in a new role at HBCU, to your point, I, 
you know, what do you see as sort of critical juncture for the university right now and how it's affecting students with, you know, how, um, you know, how to market to youth? You sort of have a sort of twofold. You have a, a minority-led college, but also this sort of younger population. And I would imagine that's a bit of a challenge in your role right now. Um, you know, it is. You know, I think there's uh, always a little bit of a, a disconnect between, you know, uh, the, the youth of how they communicate now versus um, even in the administration. Um, but I think that, you know, what Howard is doing um, has, has been really transformative in trying to ensure that they're, you know, really addressing the point you made earlier, um, addressing the, the need for Black executives, the need for, um, uh, uh, for a diversified trained and ready uh, workforce and providing that through, um, you know, the education that it provides. Howard produces the most um, PhD uh, graduates for African Americans, um, uh, for African Americans. So across the board, we're, we're producing those people. And I think Teresa, um, you know, uh, 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 made a great point that the talent is there. Um, you know, I think one of the things that uh, that is was illuminating, and I think a great example was something that came out this morning was with Wells Fargo, and uh, the comment that the CEO made. And if you're not familiar, essentially, uh, the CEO made a comment that was uh, saying that he wants to have diversity and inclusion. However, the reality, and I will quote that, um, uh, is that there's not a very good pipeline of people, and that's just not true. And I think that that uh, that comment addresses. Uh, really the, 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 the particular issue that we have in marketing, which is being able to showcase that this talent does exist and also to uh, get companies to realize that there is an, uh, a little bit of a misunderstanding of what the, is the difference between hiring someone who is uh, uh, you know, of diverse background that is qualified and or just a white male. And I think that there's a difference there. And unfortunately, what happens is at that level, it is seen as more of a risk to, um, uh, uh, to, to hire someone who is a diverse person versus a white male. And I think that that is where that disconnect happened. And that's why you have CEOs of companies that will make comments like that, because they just don't understand what it, uh, you know, uh, or really equate that a qualified minority or diverse individual is the same as what uh, uh, they believe is, you know, a current white male, which is the traditional uh, executive that you see. And you made a great comment uh, in a previous conversation Frank and I had had about risk mm -hmm. and how oftentimes there's a, a lack of uh, impetus to hire someone who is not like me, frankly, mm -hmm. and is uh, not, you know, something that they can recognize and that unpredictability of that perspective they'll provide in the office space. I'd love to hear, you know, just to share that again with our, our audience, just about, you know, what do you mean when you say risk? Yeah, so, you know, I had a conversation with, uh, and, and I'm gonna refer to the, the higher education um, industry right now, uh, but I had a conversation with some headhunters uh, who were um, often, you know, it, it, was, it was a conference, we were trying to discuss why there wasn't more minorities in these positions. And, uh, and quite frankly, I had an example of someone I had worked with who had, uh, uh, you know, had, very unfortunate situations, uh, had been fired from one job and then went to another as an executive and then got fired for the same reason that he got fired for the last job and went to another place as an executive. And I couldn't understand why that person could continue to go forward versus um, uh, I know plenty of well, uh, uh, you know, educated and ready minorities who can fill those positions. And the, the headhunter said to me that essentially it is a risk. It is a higher risk 
for uh, for um, in the minds of the the employers for them to hire a minority versus a white male that they kind of already know what their problems are going to be. That mm -hmm. is a and that's a that's a problem in the industry. There's more white men named John in um, advancement higher uh, education roles in the um, in higher education industry than there are minorities. That's a problem. And we can't say, and we, I think we really have to get past this idea that it's just about a pipeline or pool, because that's just not true. There's more um, uh, diverse individuals graduating every single year. There's so many opportunities. There's more entrepreneurs out there. The, the pool is there. And I think that the conversation has to then be addressed that really the risk, the idea of what risk is and, um, and overcoming that understanding with HR, as well as the higher, um, or the CEOs and executives needs to be addressed in that aspect. Agreed, agreed. And um, you know, Karina, with AARP, you represent such a wide swath of, of people in this country. To your point, the largest nonprofit, nonpartisan nonprofit. I, I'm curious about you know, what you've witnessed um, as, as a part of your mission, how um, people of all different types of backgrounds, including their families and caregiving uh, roles that they're in, uh, what have you noticed as sort of things to, to lean into as far as marketing and, and reaching them and, and things perhaps to, to avoid? Yeah, I think, you know, when, when we talk about bad habits, I think it's important to mention that they're often tied to very well intentions, very good intentions. People want to do something um, to reach uh, multicultural communities or age diverse communities. And I think um, they fall into the trap that doing something is better than doing nothing. But I'd argue that even though it is important to have representation via imagery, for instance, so that's kind of like a low hanging fruit tool for marketers and it tends to be low cost as well. Um, it's not gonna be enough if your actual product or the core of your social mission is not speaking to the communities, right? It's kind of it's it's going to come out flat. So again, there are good intentions in the outreach, but not fully committing to a strategy that takes into account multicultural and age diverse audiences from the get go. Um, it can do your brand more damage than good. Like a, a simple example is literal one to one translations, or even worse, Google translations, are a big no no, right? So um, really urging marketers to take the time to Transcreate, and by that I mean putting something in culture that speaks to the specific community you're trying to reach, both from a language, in the case of Hispanic Latinos, having an in-language strategy, as well as, as well as a cultural standpoint. And on the other hand, um, what I also witness is, um, you know, you get so uh, uh, interested and in, in eager to go out with a multicultural strategy that you easily fall into stereotypes. So it's important that you always consult the experts and the people who know how this community likes to be communicated to so that they can uh, advise you on a nuanced approach that it's, it's really what you need when you're trying to reach multicultural audiences. Because otherwise the true story of your brand will be your lack of understanding of the complexities of certain communities. And I think we've seen that uh, more recently with the conversations around race where the, um, the uh, brands that were doing the work already um, could come out confidently and, and be part of the conversation and those that just want to take advantage of uh, what was happening at a societal level, uh, it quickly backfired, right? So for instance, I'm, I'm Hispanic. I was born and raised in Latin America. Um, and I tend to see now in the midst of Hispanic Heritage Month, a lot of imagery that is around uh, Latino families sharing food 
Yes, we love food. We love families. We're big on, on both. But there is so much more to us and what we have to offer. So really taking the time and effort to discover us more in depth, going deeper, um, consumers will recognize it and it will appreciate it. And your the authenticity of your brand will um, will gain respect as a result. Yeah, that's, I think that's spot on. And the listening component, I think we started that with Teresa's response is that, you know, listening is so critical in the beginning. And this reactive nature, I think is a great segue to um, sort of this recent event, current events that are going on. I mean, COVID-19, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing, Black Lives Matter movement, the recent ruling on Breonna Taylor's case um, today is, there's a lot going on to con and to consider as, as a marketing uh, professional, but just in, on a personal level, you know, I think people really want to reach out while well-intended and, and ask uh, questions and, and do something about it. I think oftentimes it doesn't always land or stick um, in the right way. And so in light of that, um, I was thinking about the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and specifically what that might mean for a, a majority Supreme Court um, bench. And, and how do you anticipate that impacting your, your strategies moving forward and, um, you know, is that something that is of concern for, uh, you know, diverse communities? And I, Frank, I'd, I'd love to start with you. Um, just from an education funding standpoint, do you th think that there's um, cause for concern? Um, well, you know, I think that uh, it, it, whenever you have the courts weigh, you know, very heavily in a, uh, in a way that is not necessarily historically, I should say, historically not swaying in your or have made decisions that are going to benefit you i think there is always a cause for concern um you know because we just it, it makes things more questionable it makes uh um you know the 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 tie to uh the government even a little bit harder and so and you as we know you know uh, the higher education market we have students who you know they're they're going to protest they're going to say their minds you know that's that's one of the wonderful things about the you know the students across the country is you know they have an ability uh, to really learn their voice and and be able to um, stand up for what they believe in, and I think that the you know uh, where we're going at least on the Supreme Court side is going to be um, an interesting uh, you know a, a, a ride to do. Now, with that being said, I, I do think that the wherever we go, it, it should not change our marketing strategies for what's happening on the Supreme Court for versus who we are as an organization. Because I do believe that that goes back to the authenticity or the authentic uh, conversation we're talking about. You know, you have to double down on who you are as an institution, as a company, as a business, and serve the people that you are here to serve. Um, and I think that that is one of the, you know, regardless of what happens in those areas, we have to be very stringent about understanding who, who our market is, who, who do we serve. Um, at Howard, you know, we are, we serve, uh, uh, you know, minorities really across the board. It's not just black individuals that come to the university. We have minorities um, and really we, we specialize in producing um, African-Americans. However, we have plenty of individuals that come here, especially in our med programs, in our STEM programs. And we, our goal is to be able to take individuals who, uh, who have not been afforded those opportunities and really educate them to push them forward. And I think that um, when I think about the marketing strategies and where we need to go uh, uh, as the, the, the constant government um, changes, and while the Supreme Court decision will last pretty long, it still doesn't mean that we should uh, buy and change who we are as an organization, what we stand for, and what we're willing to, um, uh, uh, to, to speak toward for our audience. 
I think that makes a lot of sense to me. And the, and the mission piece is something that I, I know we've talked about before as a group about with COVID-19 especially, we saw resources sort of shifting towards addressing the immediate first wave of the pandemic. People are talking a lot about now about the second wave of the pandemic coming to the United States. Teresa, I'd love to start hearing about how the pandemic has affected the, those that you're serving, uh, people with disabilities and functional needs, because that, um, I think that's an important topic for a lot of, and, and you know, all these marketing people have a lot, we have budgets to worry about, you know, so it's where do those resources go and what's the most critical and, or is it, uh, speaking about a mission, is, does it make sense to shift away from the mission temporarily and focus on, say, something you're not familiar with, like public health services, um, and was that something that was perhaps a bit misguided initially because we saw a lot of organizations doing that at the onset. So um, how has Disability Inn been sort of dealing with the pandemic since March? That's a great question. I think um, it's been a twofold impact on us. Um, as a community, the disability community has been very affected by COVID-19 with many people who are immunocompromised, um, just at a greater risk for contracting COVID in the first place. Um, and then also for their healthcare um, and caregiving responsibilities too being increased during this time. And of course, a, just a nationwide shortage of those who can provide caregiving and healthcare services to individuals who need that in the disability community. Um, at the same time, we've also experienced higher unemployment, which the whole country has been experiencing, but people with disabilities in a you know, healthy economy are already have a double the unemployment than non-disabled peers. So in a pandemic, that's been heightened as well. Uh, but then for our organization, we are also seeing the impact it is on students. So many students have had a transition from um, being in colleges, being in schools, to now going back home. And there's accessibility issues, accommodation issues, um, internet access, and just overall um, access for students on that scale. Um, and so we've kind of tried to address this um, with individuals that we work with, both the disability community as people with disabilities themselves, as well as the companies that are also facing how do you change and shift to the changing workforce that we're experiencing during this time. I think many companies are recognizing that remote work is a feasibility and is needed during this time, yet the disability community really has been advocating for flexible work, remote work options as an accommodation and have been denied previously. So the pandemic in a, in a way is, is causing us to rethink what it means to be a workforce and how do we make that inclusive for everyone, no matter location which is a really important issue for the disability community, but at the same time, helping companies to see this as not as a temporary solution, but a long-term transition to making sure that everyone has access to the workforce. So that's been a challenge that COVID has taken on, and I think it's something that we have been looking um, and working with the companies we work with across industries to have listening sessions where companies are sharing how they're experiencing this, how they're working through these practices for their employee base, and then also sharing across companies within industries too. So we've kind of been that um, the mediator of those conversations for companies that have worked with us and our members with us um, so that they can have those conversations to really make sure that they're keeping disabilities at the forefront of the issues that they take forth. Really interesting. And all the more reason now that everyone can be remote working, which we're proving today, that, you know, there's nothing stopping them from hiring people with disabilities who can have access, you know, to a computer at home. So that's, that makes a lot of sense to me. Exactly. Um, Karina, same question. Um, curious about, you know, not just with the aging population, but just in general, how AARP has dealt with the pandemic and, and how it's affected your operations and, and, and thus your, your communications with the with those communities. 
Yeah, well, so Frank mentioned something that I think um, describes very well what happened to ARP, which is basically we double down on who we are as a brand. And we continue to focus our efforts with a sense of urgency, of course, in response to the pandemic around health security, financial stability, and personal fulfillment. So um, one of the challenges that we saw is, you know, we're a big organization. So we usually have various levels of review and approval before we're able to put consumer um, assets out there. And so it, it challenged us to be more nimble, uh, to streamline our processes so we can really get help to people fast. Um, and actually our brand equity saw a lift as a, as a, as a, in, in response to that. Uh, people trusting the brand, we already had a very strong brand trust, um, but the fact that we were um, just working faster and, and quicker than ever to get these key resources to um, folks that were calling us uh, concerned about their loved ones in nursing homes and what does that mean for their, for their health and how they can continue to monitor them um, with uh, not being able to see them in person or visit them in person. We heard from older workers concerned about losing their jobs. Um, a lot of them being employed for the last 20, 25 years. And we know that for older workers, it takes at least twice as long to re-entry to re-enter the workforce. So that was a big concern as well, not only on how the unemployment, what the unemployment rate might affect them um, as a result of the furloughs and the, and the um, just the big kind of um, issues that, that companies were just laying off people left and right, but also our job doesn't st stop there. So when we enter hopefully a recovery period, what does it mean for older adults who already were delayed into re-entering the workforce in a very competitive, unstable market? Um, so unemployment was big for us. We did um, several satellite media tours just trying to use the media as a platform to convey just uh, emergency resources for, for workers, uh, for caregivers. And also um, we knew that we had to protect older adult, adults against fraud, um, just because historically we know that scammers tend to increase their activity when there are situations of heightened stress and anxiety. And obviously the pandemic was providing that. Um, and older adults are more vulnerable, especially in a situation of isolation. So fraud um, was also one of the core issues that we activated. Um, during this time, and we continue to stick to what we do, um, what people know that we're going to be um, advocating on, the, on their behalf for, um, and uh, we continue to inform. We had a, a weekly teletown halls with experts, being us being the conveyor of important information, health experts, um, members of the VA, uh, you know, for the different audiences that we serve, including veterans. So it was, it was um, kind of like, uh, doing things on the fly, it never gives you that certainty that you know everything. So it was very much finding what we need to do next and kind of tweaking the focus and, and adjusting and refocusing what we do. But we always uh, stood with um, alignment with our core mission areas. And addressing really specific needs, it sounds like that, you know, we're kind of very unique to your audience. The, the listening component kind of keeps coming up. Frank, you know, understanding that, you know, a lot of debate about students coming back to campus, students leaving campus again because there's an outbreak and it, it kind of goes back and ping pongs back and forth. What are you using as a mechanism to communicate with students right now or is that, and to their families as well? Is there any particular tools that you're relying on mostly or is it sort of depends on, depends on uh, what's at hand? Yeah, I wish there was uh, some specific tools that, uh, that, you know, that engaged everyone at the same time. Of course, we're using uh, the basics of email and 
and uh, um, and ensuring that you know we have a place for we we built out a specific place in our reopening plan on our website. So therefore, that you can you can come and get up-to-date information about it, whether it's our COVID testing dashboard uh, that allows you to know how many people uh, on uh, campus, uh, you know, have been tested and, and who's positive. That's going to be even more apparent right now. We don't have students on campus or many students, I should say. And, um, you know, if we do embark trying to bring them back in the spring, whenever that happens, we'll have to make sure that, uh, that, we, that, that we have that policy there. And I think what is, uh, what's unique about Howard is our president is actually a current um, a, a surgeon and physician too. So, so uh, what, what, that gives us a unique perspective because of course on the health side, we're, we're very in tune and we also have a hospital attached to the university. So that helps us where other schools don't necessarily have um, you know, that type of connection into the administration all the time. Um, but, for, uh, but in case of, you know, uh, of how the students are there, we're ensuring that we are communicating with them on a regular basis. We have information coming out from our provost all the time. Um, about what's going on. And then of course we have our, our digital space that we, that we hold that information for. Okay. Yeah. Um, I would be remiss if we didn't move quickly over to Black Lives Matter. So I wanna make sure that we talk about this. And it, it really does kind of um, end us on a, on a nice note over the next 10 minutes or so to talk about you know, how to, what can communications and marketing leaders be doing now to ensure more equity and diversity and inclusive practices? Um, and how can those be better represented to the market you know, beyond the authenticity? Are those opportunities realistic? You know, as I, I think that it's part and parcel to what's going on in our, our society today in that you, if you're not seeing more diversity out in the market, you're not gonna be able to shift your thinking about how say, these court rulings play out or how um, we should rethink about race and, and our own sort of struggle with racism or being anti-racist um, is sort of like the new, you know, new approach to this. Um, I'd like to talk about how we diversify leadership in, in, the, in that vein, that spirit in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, so, you know, Karina, I, I think that it's, it's also something quite much, very much impacting the Latinx community as well. So I, I don't necessarily want to isolate African-Americans in this conversation either. I, I think that, you know, minorities writ large are, are, there's an opportunity to really think about what can we do right now as, as leaders in our roles um, in a position of power to, to help move the needle. Um, what, what are your thoughts in terms of what would be, you think would be most useful or something if people could have this takeaway today? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the key word that you use is position of power, right? And so AARP as an organization is, is in a position of power and we want to use our voice for the things that, that we care about. Um, so to address uh, Black Lives Matter specifically, um, you know, AARP is a strictly nonpartisan organization, and we've always been. But we strongly believe that helping put an end to brutal and justifiable and often deadly treatment of African Americans is neither liberal nor conservative. It's simply the right thing to do. And listen, we have the, the um, track record to show that we've cared about uh, racial injustice for as long as we have been founded. Uh, we've addressed it. And, uh, in racial injustice and disparities for decades, including in federal and, le and state legislative advocacy efforts, legal advocacy and programs, services, and more. So I think this really um, provided us an opportunity to use our power, use our voice to talk about this issue that we simply don't see as either, again, conservative or liberal. So uh, we did activate our voice um, when, uh, you know, back in the summer, and we continue to do so, um, just talking about the importance of solving for this very critical societal issue. Just at the, uh, on the increased diversity point, I think 
we recognize more, more than ever, perhaps, that it is important to have representation at the leadership level. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, and we can blame explicit bias or implicit bias in the recruiting industry and whatnot, it's, it's not happening at the rate that it should be. Um, but on the positive side, I think the, the timing is right to continue to have those conversations that allow us to re-examine uh, how we see uh, the importance of diversity. Um, obviously, those of us who serve diverse communities uh, know how important it is, but I think we need to continue to influence, um, in this case particularly, recruiting strategies so they, they can um, really understand how critical it is to have a multicultural mindset and different points of view from the get-go when you're creating uh, marketing, communications, and any other sort of uh, consumer efforts, because it really will, will just benefit brands. We know that. So how do we get there? I think it remains a challenge. Frank, I think you said at one point that it's kind of laughable that brands aren't doing more of it because there's real dollars on the table that they're leaving by not doing it, right? Um, right. And what does that mean? Uh, you know, I don't expect you to rattle off the exact value, but you know, what, what are your thoughts on sort of what, what money's being left on the table right now for fundraising or for, for profit companies? Well, I mean, you know, just the volume alone, if you look at the Hispanic Latino community becoming uh, the largest you know, group, population group, um, just in, in 20, 25 years on the road, um, it's, it's, it's a matter of survival, right? So your general population, the makeup of your general population will dramatically change. And if you're not speaking to them now, if you're not serving their needs now, what makes you think that your brand is going to either one, survive um, or be considered relevant? Come the time when when that population when that makeup of the population changes so, so dramatically, and the same with older adults, we see that all the time. Um, there's discrimination across many areas as it pertains to older adults, and uh, that's also an important population that has a lot of um, uh, economic power. And so it just there's value and in inclusivity, um, and and there's no downside to it. Really, there isn't. Um, it's it's just a matter of making sure that you can allocate their resources. Um, in the case of multi, like big corporations, that's not necessarily an issue. So there are challenges for smaller business um, businesses that want to do that. Uh, but there's definitely no question about the importance of doing it. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's economic power and voting power, I would say as well. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. I with that population in that regard. <laughs> Um, Frank, I, you said a statistic to me last week that really struck me about the fundraising uh, for Howard University versus Georgetown University, and, it, and just in terms of uh, uh, the question of resources and, and how you, um, you know, that is just a point of comparison. Mm -hmm. And so when I talk about real do dollars left on the table, I think that's something a lot of nonprofits are struggling with. Um, I don't. I don't know if anyone quite realizes, or perhaps they do, but the dichotomy of what white-led institutions are, are in, incurring a year versus, say, an HBCU like Howard University. Yeah, and I think that you know the, uh, the like a Georgetown University will raise anywhere between 150 to 200 plus million a year um, in fundraising support. Whereas Howard University, you know, at, up until a few years ago, their largest. Um, um, year was raising $10 million. 
It's only been very recently in this past year where we've done a really good job of engaging uh, a, a lot of philanthropists who have supported the university at a lot larger level and, and hopefully um, uh, will be right now will be one of the uh, will be the first HBCU to say that we've raised $100 million in a year. Um, and, and, we, and we're close to doing that right now in the first quarter of the year. And that, that, but that's a rarity. And that's also from, you know, a lot of, of wonderful philanthropists that, that, that are really a one-off gifts a lot of time. And I think so there's a difference between who your core um, foundational support is and uh, versus what are a lot of one-offs at the present moment. And, and, and we're so new into, um, uh, into that fundraising realm and getting to those levels that it takes a while to get sustained. And I think that uh, to a point you made earlier, uh, the, we live in a world where um, it's really two different worlds. As a minority in, this, uh, uh, in, in America, we have no choice but to engage with every single person that exists in America. As a white male um, in, uh, in this society, and often even as a white female, you don't have to engage with um, a minority or someone of diverse background. It is, it, you know, there's many people who grow up and the first time they ever have to do that is in college. Um, uh, I went to Michigan State University undergrad and there were many individuals that for the first time of them interacting with someone who was diverse was in college. So whereas I've had to, you know, we've all had to uh, interact with everyone on the daily basis. So what that means is the intentionality that you have to have uh, in, in fixing this problem goes beyond just marketing. Because as a marketer, we cannot make a statement that our company can't back up. We can't make a statement that we're about um, uh, caring for individuals uh, who have been underserved and communities who have been underserved if we have no programs that are actually helping those communities. Um, and if that's a part of your target market and a part of your audience, then you're going to miss that, uh, that authentic line that draws the two together. And when you think about what your company can be doing right now, especially in the higher education field, is, you know, does your company have a pipeline to students uh, of diverse backgrounds, to an HBCU where they're producing uh, you know, the, the highest, um, you know, amount of PhD students that are out there, you know, do you have those pipelines built in so that when you do have internships, when you do have um, hiring practices, it's not a token hire. This should be an intentional uh, way for you to understand that the quality of individuals is just as high um, and oftentimes higher in value to you because you want to live longer in this relationship. And when we think about fundraising, um, the, you know, the great part about HBCU, of course, is that we, we exist because of uh, the injustices that have happened in the country. But if you're not an HBCU, um, you know, your, uh, the, the, the diverse audience you have as students as you diversify your current population is normally different than your large gifts. Your large gifts have been coming from individuals who have a lot of wealth and wealth disparities already mean that most of those individuals will be white. That's right now. The entrepreneurial rate of, of black women is growing on a, a substantial basis. Um, you know, again, these uh, the PhD students who are growing at an exponential rate that in 10 to 20 years from now, when most people will have accumulated their, uh, accumulated their uh, large wealth gaps here, that's gonna be the audience that you're missing right now. And as Karina pointed out, if you're not talking to them now, if they don't feel authentically connected to you now and knowing that you have, put, uh, have been intentional about actually helping, then you're gonna miss that market. And then 10, 20 years from now, you're gonna be an afterthought for, uh, for where those philanthropists are gonna be giving their dollars. 
And so again, real money being left on the table. If there's no other takeaway today, it should be that. Um, mm -hmm. And I, you made a really great point and it's a quick sidebar. And I want Teresa just very quickly, would love to hear your perspective on that. But it's fine that there are people of color, people who are of, of minority or, um, or diversity who are being put into these equity, diversity and inclusive roles at companies, you know, chief diversity officer, what have you. But there's a load of other leadership roles that people of different backgrounds could be filling. There's nothing stopping you from appointing a CFO who's a black man. There's nothing stopping you from appointing a South Pacific Asian woman as a CEO. And having that diversity of, of uh, you know, having power in that role offers a lot of value as well. Um, certainly could add to that authenticity we keep we keep coming back to. Um, and Teresa, to that end, I mean, the recruitment pool, as far as what you're hearing from companies, listening to them, and we have a question actually from the audience about listening. So I think this is a nice segue to the audience uh, Q&A. What, what tools are you using to listen to them and what are they providing as feedback in terms of money that they might be losing as a result of not diversifying their workforce? Yeah, that's a great question. I think companies really struggle with where to find disabled talent. Um, oftentimes they forget that they might have have workers with disabilities in their workplace who may have invisible disabilities who they're not reaching out to, not highlighting, not valuing, or including in their, in their um, company culture. And so sometimes we start with companies to actually survey their employees within. Um, there is federal legislation out there um, called Section 503 of the Rehabilitation Act that makes federal contractors and subcontractors are required to survey their workforce um, to voluntarily self-disclose that they have a disability. And um, there's different ways that companies can go about doing that, but it really just shows is that sometimes companies overlook the population that they do have, but then it goes beyond that. Um, the regulation also encourages people to really be part of pushing the needle on making good faith efforts to reach out to the disability community. So companies are often struggling with that. And that's where they come to us as we have a great talent pool of disabled students, recent graduates, early career professionals who are all well equipped to take on the roles at some of these companies. And so it's really about seeing the person first and recognizing that oftentimes living with a disability has made them be more adaptable to different things in the workforce um, and being able to see a skills-based approach on that too. So um, surveys definitely help with their existing workforce. The other thing is, is really reaching out and engaging one-on-one -on -one with individuals with disabilities in the community setting. Um, many companies have had little exposure. I think Frank touched on that exposure to people of difference, um, whether that's um, someone who's a minority, someone with a disability, whatever it might be, it's a lack of exposure and then knowledge. And I think that's where some of that, that risk that was mentioned earlier in the hiring process comes in because they're not as sure of what the talent will be because they may not have seen someone with a disability go through their talent pipeline before. So that's where really having um, outreach really helps. And companies in the past have done this in a variety of ways. There's been focus groups, there's um, been listening sessions, um, conversations, um, things that we can help facilitate, but also just the idea that um, you have to be reaching out. Um, there's a lot of great disability leaders who are out there advocating on social media, on different channels, um, on the value in the business case for hiring people with disabilities, but you really have to have sometimes at the same time um, as a start at the top, you know, with leadership, having to see that value and to recognize that it's not just inclusion. I think um, either Karina 
where Frank had mentioned, it's not just inclusion in the hiring space, but also what does your supply chain look like? There's disability owned businesses that you could be working with. How are you connected to those? What does it look like um, in the marketplace for your consumers, for your products? How are you making sure those are accessible um, and how to make sure that everything that you're producing as a company is accessible for everyone? So there's a variety of ways companies can tackle it, but the answer is definitely not that the talent doesn't exist because it does. It's just about how are you seeking out that talent from different channels and thinking more holistically and inclusive about where you're finding your next hire. I think that's great. Thank you. I think that, that addresses that question nicely. And I think it's a great segue to this next question we received um, from Yvette about how do you communicate to leadership that perhaps the brand framing or if they go to the you know about page as a minority and it doesn't seem like their um, value set or the way they're representing their organization is reflective of you. Um, how do you shift that framing? And I think it's a great question for Karina because again, you have to encapsulate such a large amount of people. How do you um, create a messaging framework for your organization that can be sort of all encompassing and make people feel as though that's gonna be an inclusive environment and accepted environment for them to either work at or just to have a membership with or, or what have you? Yeah, I think it's really kind of making the case and it shouldn't be needed, right? You shouldn't have to make a case for something that's so blatantly obvious and needed. But um, in the case of ARP, for instance, we have programs, programmatic teams and leaders that do this work day in and day out um, for the various communities that we serve. That we serve. So for instance, there's a multicultural group, multicultural leadership group, there's a veterans and military uh, programming group, uh, there's an LGBTQ uh, group. And so they are uh, the number one advocates day in and day out for the, for the work that they do and how they need to be represented and the overarching communications strategy and consumer strategy that we have. For smaller organizations, I think maybe just writing some examples on how people are tweaking their language to be more inclusive, um, whether that's starting with the HR department or with leadership, um, it will depend on infrastructure of the organization, but I think um, just pointing it out, you'll be surprised, um, especially again, the timing's right, people are talking about this. Um, so you, you might be surprised at how open they are just to make sure that there's inclusivity in the language besides imagery and, and the product itself. That's great. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. That I think there's an opportunity to speak to leadership and it, it would be now. Um, we have a great question uh, from Bridget Hanna, who's in um, upstate New York, so my, my area. So I'm really glad this came through. Um, Frank, uh, how do you feel about the tactics of universities that are in rural, predominantly white environments to focus their marketing on urban students who are predominantly students of color? Is it ethical for them to sell their city as diverse, inclusive, and welcoming to students of color when that may not be the case? How should universities be considering the off-campus environment of these rural communities? Yeah, I think that that's a great question, and and it's it is a challenge. Um, you know, the the one thing it goes back to a comment I made earlier. Uh, as a person of minority, or at least minority descent, we know what the world is. Um, it, it it we grow up having very different conversations about what it means to leave the house and and what areas we're going to uh, be in as soon as we're un, uh, at least out of the protection of our home. Um, I went to Michigan State University and. Uh, you, and, and the first day on campus, um, as I was walking down the street outside of campus, a truck pulled up a, with a group of what I think were actual students, but, um, uh, but they said, go back to Detroit inward, and then drove off. So 
that wasn't a surprise to me because I went up there. And, and, and at Michigan State's tournament, I, they didn't sell me on the city being diverse. What they sold me on is their, who they are as an institution, what they believe, and what education I was going to get um, uh, from, from being a part of their institution. So then it goes back to really thinking that it's not about always the area that you're in, when you're really talking to those individuals, what programs of support do you have for them? Are you asking them to come to, their, uh, to your university and not give them support? Because that's a, that's a scarier conversation. That's a harder message to have. But, uh, but to know that we understand the world and here's what we're doing to make sure that your experience at our university is great in these fields. This is where we're, try we're gonna try to get you to. Here's a way that we're gonna uh, make sure that you're successful. That's the conversation, that's the marketing that um, will speak to that household to know that when I leave, uh, when I send my child to an area that I already know is not the best for um, uh, for my for my um, for my child, that I know that the organization has their back uh, because the world is already not going to be a place that's going to be just open arms at all at all times. Most of the cities aren't, and so that's just a conversation that I think is more about what you're going to do as an organization and what support system you're going to have as as more of a marketing appeal. Yeah, that's really critical. We could have a whole other panel discussion about that. I'm mm -hmm. sure. Um, I think we have time for one or two more questions. Um, and we have a great one. And we've talked about this before, Teresa and Karina, about imagery. Um, Teresa, uh, what are some tangible tactics to prioritize representation without tokenizing marginalized groups? And that comes from Rachel. That's a great and difficult question. Um, I think it all comes back to authenticity and it really is reaching out to the community to make sure that you have representation that reflects the diversity also within that community. I think Karina talked about it earlier that um, a lot of the imagery that she's seeing is around families, around food, and that there's so much more to the community than just that. And one thing that we struggle with in the disability community with disability representation is that it's not just the wheelchair. Um, that's kind of the, the, the placeholder for a handicap symbol, um, what you see on a placard for a car. Um, but there's so much more to the disability experience than just um, those with physical disabilities that use a wheelchair. And so there is a fine balance. Um, oftentimes when we do see that representation, it's often the, the hospital type wheelchair that, you know, has a little arm handles and many people with disabilities don't use in a day-to-day -day setting. Um, and so it's even the little differences there, um, but it could be someone who uses a walker or a cane or someone who's blind. Um, there's just different ways that people can show disability that recognizes the full scope. Um, that there's people, we used to say like, if you've met one person with a disability, you've met just one person with a disability and it's not endemic of the whole community. And so that is what kind of makes our community maybe a little bit difficult to, um, you know, put a picture out there for, but that's where it comes from, the focus groups, the outreach, um, talking with different disability influencers that can really help because it shows that there is an actual commitment. Um, companies that have done this well, I think of Microsoft with um, their, their Xbox um, game controller that was made accessible for people with physical disabilities that I think they had a spotlight in the Super Bowl ad a couple years ago. Um, they did a, a great outreach to the disability community to listen to the concerns of what their product to really understand how it was being used and then to also have a representation of someone with a disability actually using their product in the end. Um, and I think it was just a great example of it it kind of works both ways of that you're trying to reach you know a product or whatever you're trying to market but you're also trying to listen to the concerns of the community and incorporate them in as well. 
And I, and I think this is a good conversation with regards to resources too, right? How do you capture that imagery and afford that, especially if you're kind of a strapped nonprofit, which is our, our final question from um, our audience from Caitlin. Um, Karina, what advice would you provide uh, for a small nonprofit limited or even a small business with a, a limited resources in uh, maybe they can't do a satellite media tour or pull in external experts to do a multicultural campaign, but what can people be doing that um, perhaps is an internal resource that can support that effort to make sure ensure that their marketing communications is multicultural and authentic, of course. Yeah, I mean, if you have um, a diverse staff leverage them and use them um, and pressure test different concepts because at the very least what you can do and that would be very beneficial for your brand is um, not to be tone deaf to certain audiences. So maybe you're not doing an active outreach effort um, to target your product, your service, your, your organization to a specific community, but you don't want to be in a situation where you are not only not speaking to them, but you're actually offending them. Um, so it's very important that you pressure test your consumer, um, your consumer assets with people inside the organization that can be kind of that sounding board when you, when you are coming out with something. Um, and I, I love what Teresa said about imagery because I think it is, a, it can't, if used correctly, I do think it's a very low cost uh, tool that you can use effectively. Um, the challenges that we see there, you know, we've come a long way since 2014 when Cheerios put a, a commercial featuring an international family and they got an incredible amount of criticism. Um, but we're still very much featuring um, communities of color in silos. So we tend to feature um, the black family, the Hispanic family, the Asian family, and we don't show them mixing again up to 15% of new marriages is between a white person and a non-white person. So to the extent that you can reflect that new reality, that new makeup of the American family, I think there is a, some authenticity in there as well that not a lot of people are going right now. Great, we have, we have one more minute. So I wanted to ask this question as a closing thought. Um, and Karina, I'll start with you. What do you hope to see in marketing in 2021 that you're not seeing now? Um, wow, that's a good question. Um, I think I think more of what we're seeing, what we saw this year, where companies are kind of overcoming their fears in making a stand for what they believe is the right thing to do. Um, I know that certain organizations, um, like I mentioned, ARP is nonpartisan, and, and sometimes uh, there are some uh, themes that we've kind of not shied away from before, but we've definitely taken great caution as to how we talk about them. Uh, but it has come to a point where, again, we really need to use our power. And I just would like to see brands to continue to use their power and their voice and stand for the things that are right. Teresa. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think something that we're facing as a community is um, inclusivity and in technology. Um, as a move to everything's virtual and digital, um, we really have to make sure we're not leaving anyone behind by not making sure it's inclusive. So how are you reaching audiences with physical or ver uh, visual disabilities who can't navigate your website because they use a screen reader and it isn't accessible to their screen reader? How are your images being accessible from having image descriptions? How are videos having audio audio descriptions and um, captions as well. And so I think that's a new frontier is making sure that it's accessible for, for everyone. And I think the accessibility space is something that many people are just getting on that journey. And so there's a lot more work that I can see in that area. Yeah. 
absolutely. And Frank. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is important is I want to see the insights for our marketing messages become a lot deeper. Um, as Karina and Teresa have both pointed out, if you've done your marketing correctly, it's hard. It's not easy. If you've gotten to a message very easily, then I don't think you really got to the insight that's going to drive someone, um, can drive consumer behavior. Um, a great example of that is, you know, Karina talked about families and food and how Latinos are sometimes just put at that aspect. You know, what uh, a surface level marketing uh, message would be, just using my family as an example, we tend to always be in the kitchen when we're together. And so, um, and, and you can have a house as big as the world can be, but we'll still be in the kitchen. We'll find ourselves there. And uh, the surface level marketing will, will put something out that's something related to, you know, uh, we like to be in, you know, eat food together. That, that is too low of a, of a bar of what the messaging really is because you haven't dug deeper to realize that, you know, the, the real insight is that, um, that, that this is a place where we feel safe. This is a place where um, uh, that, that we speak to uh, the idea that, it's, that family is an area that we don't have to worry about the other things and the other problems that we have. At this moment, we feel safe. I want to see that the insights inside of all of our marketing is really backed up in digging deeper and using data and research in order to do that. And whether you're a large organization, if you don't have the diversity, you need to hire a firm that goes out and digs for that. And if you're a, a nonprofit, um, you don't have a lot of money, you can connect yourself with a local university that has students in marketing programs who are required to do capstone projects to go out and actually do this work for you for free. There's always an option. And so I, I want people to do the extra step this year um, and really try to dig deeper into their insights. That's a great place to end. Thank you to all of our panelists for joining us and in ComNet V. This has really been a terrific uh, conversation. Um, more to come. Thank you again.